了。Good evening, everyone. We are starting a new series that、uh, I am really excited about. I'm going to call this series "Reasons to Believe," and we're going to be looking at a number of different aspects of the gospel, the Christian faith, and I think this will be useful both to strengthen our own faith, what it is that we really believe. And also to equip us to be able to share our faith with others.、Um, I'm really sensing, for some time now, the Lord preparing us to be witnesses, to be salt, to be light, to be able to reach the world around us. And if you were with us the past few weeks, we saw that we've got some real challenges because we're facing. A culture that's very much atheistic, very secularized, and in many cases antagonistic toward the things of God, and we have to really understand the mindset of the people that we're trying to reach and to know how to reach them, and not that we're trying to change the gospel message to suit them, but to understand. How to present it to them in a way that they can understand.、Uh, so tonight we're starting by looking at the uniqueness of the Christian faith, and I want to begin with a verse that we mentioned even in our previous study. But I want to kind of build on this more, and it's found in First Peter three, verse fifteen. First Peter three. Verse 15, and I'll read it first from the NIV, and then we may look at parts of it in the Amplified version. Also, it says, "But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have." But do this with gentleness and respect. Be prepared always to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Very interesting scripture, and we're going to dissect this a little bit. Uh, what we're trying to do in these next few weeks is to be prepared.、Um, the scriptures have a lot to say about our、um, input into this whole process. We have to study. We have to prepare. We have to understand certain things so that we can give an answer. And it says to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, if somebody comes up to me on the street and says, "Hey, why are you a pastor? Why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus?" Peter says I should be ready to give them some logical reasons, some logical answers. For my faith, and that's why we're calling this series "Reasons to Believe." 
And a lot of Christians, I think, have the mistaken idea that we're just going to blindly believe in the Bible, blindly believe in God, and kind of turn off our brain and not really think about anything and not use any reason or logic. That's wrong. Believing in God, I think we're going to see, is very logical. Believing in the Bible makes very good logical sense. And as we study and prepare ourselves, we'll be able to give explanations and reasons to others why it would be logical for them as well to put their faith, their hope, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's take this piece by piece. Uh, It says in the first part of this verse, always be prepared to give an answer. To give an answer. In the original Greek, it's the word apologia. And it sounds like apology, but it's a different concept. And you may have actually heard the term apologetics. That's uh, a certain branch of Christian theology that deals with giving logical reasons a reasonable defense for the gospel. And the, the word apologia literally means to make a plea, to give an answer, or to give a defense. And it's used in various ways in the New Testament to reflect those different meanings. To make a plea, or as it's translated here, to give an answer, and we'll see some other scriptures in a minute where it's used to give a defense for the gospel. And actually the Amplified Bible uh, for this particular portion of 1 Peter 3.15, it's translated, give a logical defense. I like that. Give a logical defense for the hope you have in Jesus Christ. And coming back to the NIV, it says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. Give the reason. And that word reason is the word logos, which is often translated word, the word of God, but it also refers to logic, reasoning. Uh, One meaning of the word logos is computation. So, In this sense, uh, and I think the Amplified translation gets it right, it refers to giving a logical reason. A logical reason. And that's why I said at the beginning, our belief in Christ, our belief in the Bible, is very logical, it's very reasonable. And we're going to see tonight that Christianity is based on verifiable facts, many, many facts that have been verified. And so we don't have to check out our brain and our intelligence when we put our faith in the Bible, in the Word of God, and in Christ. Now, 
coming back to the first part of this verse, it says, always be prepared. Um, that puts the onus on us. We have to do some homework. We have to be ready always. And the word here can mean be prepared, be fit, or be ready. So we have to take the time to study to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. We have to search the scriptures. We have to even look at some uh, basic facts concerning uh, Christianity, its history, uh, where the Bible came from, how the Christian church began, and so forth. And we're going to try to do that in these coming weeks. But tonight I'm just trying to give an overview of what we want to do in this study. I mentioned this word apologia, uh, to give an answer, can also be translated to give a defense. And you see in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, uh, two places here where this scripture is used, this Greek word, apologia, is used. Um, in Philippians 1, verse 7, Paul is writing to the Philippian church, and he says, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. The word that's translated there, defending, is the same word, apologia, giving a defense. And I think the King James here actually says, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And a little later in Philippians 1, going down to verse 17, Philippians 1, verse 17, um, it says, the former preach, actually, the NIV, we need to start at verse 16. It's a little confusing because King James, it's in verse 17. But reading from the NIV, it says, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That's that same word, for the defense of the gospel. So, putting all this together, we are to be prepared as Christians to give a reason, give an explanation, give an answer to everyone why we believe in Christ, why the gospel is true. And one other verse that talks about this idea of giving an answer or giving a defense is found in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. Colossians 4 verse 6. I'll read first from the NIV and then I want to read the Amplified because it's quite nice. The NIV says, 
Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That you may know how to answer everyone. That's what we're talking about. Giving an answer, giving an explanation, giving a defense. And now listen to the Amplified. It gives more of a complete (coughs) understanding. Let your speech at all times be gracious, pleasant, and winsome, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may never be at a loss to know how you ought to answer anyone who puts a question to you. Let me read that last part again. So that you may know how you ought to answer anyone who puts a question to you. So, if you try to imagine, and I'm sure this has happened to many of us, if you try to imagine a family member or a co-worker or a friend or somebody saying, hey, why are you a Christian? Why do you go to church? Why do you believe the Bible? Um, all these scriptures are telling us we should have a good answer, and we may need to do some preparation. That's what we're doing in this Bible study equipping ourselves so that we can give a good answer to anyone who wants to question. Now, having said that, let me give a word of caution. And I think you see this in a couple of these verses that we've already read. God is not saying to get into arguments with people. And I think you need to be discerning when you're talking to people. If they're just trying to argue and quarrel and get into a heated debate with you, uh, there may be a point in the conversation where you just need to finish it and move on. And you need to discern whether their questions are sincere or whether they're just trying to pick a fight. And... We're called to win souls, not arguments. And I learned this years ago that you don't just want to get out there and argue and debate and beat the person up and convince them that you're right and they're wrong. And you may win the argument and lose the person. So we're not called to win arguments. We're called to win souls. And part of that may involve giving some good answers, giving some logical reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. But let me take you back to our opening scripture now in 1 Peter 3. And notice there's a little piece at the very end of this verse that seems to confirm what we're saying here. I'll read the whole scripture again. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But, very important conjunction there, but do this with gentleness and respect. In other words, how we come across with unbelievers and with unsaved people is just as important as whatever it is that we're saying. If we're confrontational and we come across as 
know-it-alls and arrogant and you don't know anything and I'm going to tell you everything I know, uh, pretty good chance you've already lost the battle. You may win the argument, but you've lost that person. And Peter says, do all of this with gentleness and respect. And I've been in situations and I've seen other Christians where they get into a heated argument with an unbeliever. And to be honest with you, they weren't gentle and they weren't being respectful of that individual. And I don't care if we're talking to the worst atheist on the face of the earth. We need to pray that God gives us the right spirit to speak to them. Speak to them with gentleness and always treat anyone with respect. They may be yelling and screaming and calling you a demon and all kinds of things, but we need to be careful to have the right spirit when we're doing this. And notice the other verse that we read in Colossians 4. It also not only says to give an answer, but it tells you how to do it. Colossians 4, verse 6 again. By the way, the notes for these studies, I am uh, giving them to Pastor David Slentz, and he's putting them up on our website for those that uh, want to access the notes. Uh, it says, Let your conversation be always full of grace. So in our talking to people and giving them a defense of the gospel and giving them reasons, logical answers and all of that, he says, be careful that you do it in a gracious way. Let your conversation be always with grace. And the verse we read earlier in 1 Peter 3, um, do this with gentleness and respect, the Amplified Bible says, do it courteously and respectfully. I think that's very important. Whenever we're speaking to anyone, speak to them courteously, speak to them respectfully. The King James says, do it with meekness and fear. Now, one other scripture in this regard, just to kind of finish this discussion about not quarreling and arguing and debating people. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, from verse 23 to 26. And trust me, over the years, I've gotten in many debates with atheists, with Jehovah's Witnesses, with Mormons, with all kinds of people. And I'd be lying to say that I haven't gotten into arguments and maybe even gotten angry and treated them with something less than courtesy and respect. But I doubt, I may have won the argument, but I doubt that I won the person. So we need to be very careful in this regard. And Paul has some real wisdom that he shares with Timothy here. And again, I believe God is preparing us to go out, to share the gospel with people. And in doing so, we may meet up with some people that are confrontational 
They may want to pick a fight and quarrel and all of that. And these are some very good verses to teach us what to do in a situation like that. 2 Timothy 2, starting at verse 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Pretty clear. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, and this goes right along with what we read in the other verses, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. And Paul knew that people were going to oppose the message. Verse 25, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Verse 25 teaches us something very important. When somebody is opposing the message, you and I are not going to convince them. That is not our job. That is not our responsibility. Our job is to present the facts, to teach the Word of God, to give them a good explanation, give them good reasons, logical reasons to believe in God and His Word, and then after that, the rest, you need to leave it up to God. It says, those who oppose Him, He must gently instruct, and I love these next words, in the hope that God will grant them repentance. In other words, once you're done talking, you need to hope that God is going to open that person's eyes, change their heart, and as the next verse says, bring them to their senses so that they can understand and come to a knowledge of the truth. So, uh, moving on now, we need to be careful in presenting the gospel. We're defending the truth. We're giving logical reasons to believe in the truth. In the book of Jude, we're not going to go there, but verse 3 says, we must know how to contend for the faith. But I don't think that means we're supposed to be contentious, argumentative, quarrelsome. Just defending the truth, taking a firm stand that This is the Word of God, these are the facts, this is the truth, and presenting a logical series of reasons and explanations to answer why we are a believer. Now, what I want to do tonight, I don't know if we're going to be able to complete this part tonight, but we'll at least uh, do part of it. I want to look at some of the exclusive claims of Christianity. Now, as you know, there are many religions in the world, and invariably people are going to ask you, well, you're religious, so am I. All of our religions are the same. They're all taking us to God. And you're a Christian, I'm a Hindu, he's a Buddhist, she's a Muslim. 
What's the difference? They're all good religions, and they're all uh, making us into moral people, and they're all going to end up taking us to the same place, to God and to heaven. So what's different about your religion? When we really look at the claims of Christianity, there's nothing on the face of the earth like Christianity. No other religion under the sun is even remotely similar to Christianity. And the claims that are made by Christianity are bold claims. And I think we need to understand for ourselves what is our faith? What do we claim to have as a Christian? And what does our Christian faith claim to be? And I'm going to break this up into uh, a number of different parts. The first one I want to look at in this list of exclusive claims of Christianity, the God of the Bible claims to be the only true God. So the God that is from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22 he himself repeatedly states and declares in his word, and we're going to talk more about the Bible, the word of God, a little bit later, but the God of the Bible repeatedly claims that he is the only true God, he is the creator of heaven and earth, and he has no equal, there's no other God like him, he is the one, there isn't a second one, he is the only true God. And one of my favorite passages is Jeremiah 10, verse 10 to 12. Jeremiah 10, verse 10, and we'll read it all the way down to verse 12. Here we go, Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. A few weeks ago, we were looking specifically at the opening chapters of Genesis and the importance of certain foundational truths that are introduced in those first few chapters of the Bible. And literally, the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible establishes the most important foundation of all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is repeatedly mentioned in passages like this, where God himself declares, I am the only true God. And the proof of that is, I made the heavens and the earth. No other God 
can make that claim. Let me read this again. The Lord is the true God. There are lots of false gods, little g, lots of false gods, but there's one true God. He is the living God, and he is eternal. He's the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles, the nations cannot endure his wrath. And then verse 11 says, tell them this, these gods, little g, and let me just insert here, the gods of every other religion, you can fill in the blank, the god of Buddhism, the god of Islam, the gods of Hinduism, whatever other gods besides this one true and living God, here's the distinction. These gods did not make the heavens and the earth. When it all is said and done, here's the dividing line. The one true God, he claims to be the only God, and the proof of that is he made everything. And whoever made everything obviously has every right and authority to claim to be the king, the ruler, the owner of the entire universe. And so God's claim as the only true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, there's no other God that can make that claim and back it up. And verse 12, it says, But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. And you find scriptures like this all throughout the Bible where God himself defends this claim that he is the one and the only true God. There isn't an alternative. There isn't some other God that you can also worship or believe in and end up with the same destiny. He makes this claim repeatedly, I am the only true God. Now Jesus, in John 17, he confirms that not only is he sent by this one and only true God, but earlier in the Gospel of John, he claims to be one with that God. And we're going to talk more about Christ in a little bit. But in John 17, verse 3, Jesus here is praying to the Father, and he says this, John 17, 3, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And some of my favorite verses that talk about the majesty, the supremacy of God, the fact that he is unequaled, there's no one like him, he doesn't share that power and that glory with anyone, he is the one and only true God, the God of the Bible, the God of the scriptures, 
is the God of all creation is found in Isaiah chapter 40. And sometimes when I'm feeling a little bit down or a little bit discouraged, I love to read this whole chapter. And it just lifts my spirit when I, re- when I am reminded of the greatness of God and that there isn't anyone else like Him. Now, if you go to Isaiah 40, if you want some homework, read the whole chapter. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to pick out two segments here. Isaiah 40, starting at verse 12. Isaiah 40, from verse 12. And God himself is speaking here. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? You know, with modern telescopes and other technology, they have been able to go further and further and further out to the limits of the universe. And you don't use miles when you're measuring distances in the universe, you use light years. A light year is the distance that a light beam can travel in one year. And just to give you some idea of what that means, the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That means going around the Earth at the equator seven times in one second. So if you're traveling at that incredible speed, you can go for millions and millions of light years and not reach the edge of the universe, the heavens. And yet God says he can measure it with the breadth of his hand. In other words, from his thumb to the little finger, the span of his hand, is enough to mark all of that distance off. He continues, Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? You know, God didn't have to go to school. Nobody had to teach him anything. And yet, the the wisdom and the knowledge of God, we're told, is unsearchable. There's no way we can even begin to comprehend the mind of God. And then in verse 15, he says, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. This God of the Bible, who claims to have made everything, also claims to be so infinitely great in power and wisdom and knowledge that we can't even begin to comprehend it. But it gets better. 
later on in this chapter, and again, I'm jumping around, down in verse 25, God continues to ask some questions. And this is, again, where you see this claim that God, the God of the Scriptures, the God of the Bible, is the one and the only true God. He says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Notice again, he always appeals to the creation. Any other God that claims to be my equal, step forward and explain to me how you created the heavens and the earth. And of course, God is the only one that can make that claim. Verse 26 again. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. You know, it's impossible for us to even comprehend this. They say there may be a hundred million galaxies in the universe, and each galaxy with billions and billions of stars. Nobody can number them, but God says he knows their names. He knows the number, the name, the exact path of every single star. Why? Because he made them. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. You know, I can go on all night reading these scriptures. I love them. I just love to read about the greatness and the majesty of God. But we have to move on. But I want to read one more while we're here in Isaiah. Isaiah 44. And we're going to come back to this later on because it introduces us to another important facet of what makes Christianity so unique. And that is the many hundreds of predictions, prophecies that were written down in the scriptures, often hundreds of years before they came to pass, and then they were fulfilled to an exact T, every detail just as God predicted. And you'll see that this is mentioned here in this passage. Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 6. Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8. And the Lord again is speaking here. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, 
I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. There is no other God, little g, that can make such a claim. That A, I made everything. I was before anything. I'm the first. I'm the last. And apart from me, there is no God. Next verse. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. This is an important thing that we're going to come back to later on. One of the proofs that the God of the Bible is who he says he is, the one and only true God, is he foretells the future. He foretells, he predicts things hundreds of years before they happen, and he's challenging any other that would claim to be God. All right, come and do that. Come and predict what is yet to come. And of course, they can't do that. Only God can foretell the future because the Bible says he knows the end from the beginning. He's the everlasting God. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And I love verse 6 again. Apart from me, there is no God. That's his claim. Repeatedly throughout the Bible, I am the only true God. Verse 8. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this? and foretell it long ago? We were speaking last night, a lot of the things that are happening in the world today, even events that are taking place in Russia and the Middle East, these have all been foretold. They're all predicted in the Bible. So we should not tremble. We should not be afraid. It's all written in the Scriptures. God proclaimed it and foretold it long ago. You are my witnesses, and here it comes again. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. So the first exclusive claim that is foundational to the Christian faith, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, who is also the God of the New Testament, he himself claims that there's only one God. There aren't other gods that can offer the same redemption, the same salvation, etc. There's one true God. He's the God of the Bible. The second unique claim that is only made by the Christian faith is this, and it it goes right along with this first point. Christ claims to be the only way to this God. So he's the one and only true God, and Jesus claims repeatedly to be the only way 
to reach that true God. He's the only way to salvation and to heaven. And I'm sure everybody knows the verse, but let's read it. John 14, verse 6. And people will challenge this. Oh, there are many ways to God. Are you are you going to tell me that only Christians are going to heaven? That you're better than the Buddhists or the Muslims or the Hindus or the atheists? Well, let's listen to what Jesus himself claims. John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am one of many ways. Is that what it says? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty simple. Now, an unbeliever might get angry when they hear that and say, Oh, you all are claiming to be the only ones. You're the exclusive ones. Well, that's not our claim. It's Jesus' claim. He's very clear there isn't a plan B. There isn't any other way to reach God or to reach heaven. There's one way, and he is that way. So, recapping this so far, number one, God claims to be the only true God. The God of the Bible is the creator God, the eternal God, and he claims to be the only God. Jesus, when he came to earth, he claimed, I am the only way to take you to that true God. And many other scriptures we'll look at later on in this study, but uh, particularly in the Gospel of John, repeatedly, Jesus makes wild claims. I am that I am. He claimed to be co-equal with God the Father. He claimed to be the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the one and only door to God, to heaven, and to salvation. No one has ever made such claims and been able to back them up. And when we come back to this later, we have to look at all of the claims that Jesus himself makes in the Bible. And it, it has been rightly stated, either he was a deluded maniac, completely out of his mind, making all these crazy and wild claims, or he has to be everything that he claimed to be. And you can't have it both ways, and you can't have it halfway. Either he was in his right mind, and every claim he made is true and has been verified, or he's a liar, a lunatic, and we might as well just forget about following him. This is an amazing claim. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God except through me. Now, a third unique claim that is the basis of our whole Christian faith, and this is a big one, and we'll be 
developing this more in coming weeks. The Bible. The Bible. Not any other religious book. The Bible claims to be the only true revelation from God. This one true God, whose Son claims to be the only way to that true God, has revealed Himself through the Holy Bible, the Scriptures. And no wonder, for centuries, the Bible has been under such attack. This is the only book God ever wrote. And by the way, the word Bible comes from the Greek word biblos, which means book. And really, when we're saying Bible, all we're saying is the book. This is the book. You know, a lot of people have written scores of books. Authors have big, long lists of all their writings. Uh, God's only written one book. It's the only book he's ever written, only book he's ever going to write. It's his book, the Bible. And the Bible itself makes many, many claims about the fact that it is the true revelation from this true God. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. Actually, I'll start at verse 19. Isaiah 8, verses 19 and 20. It says, When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and muddle and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? And just a side note, as we were studying these past few weeks, we're living in a culture now that has be become very spiritual, but they're looking in all the wrong places. Meditation and yoga and Hinduism and all sorts of strange religious writings and revelations that people have gotten, even consulting mediums and getting involved in witchcraft and the occult and all these things, God says, why don't you look in the right place? Well, where's the right place? Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. Now, of course, this was written in Isaiah's day, so all they had at that time were the Old Testament scriptures, to the law and to the testimony. <clears throat> if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. King James says they have no light in them. In other words, even in Isaiah's day, God was saying, if you're looking anywhere else except my law, my word, you're looking in the wrong place. And if anybody is speaking anything other than what's written in my word, they are in darkness. 
They have no light in them. And numerous other places, Old Testament and New, where the the Bible itself claims to have this authority that it's God's Word. This is God's revelation to mankind. There isn't another book that he wrote. This is the book, the Biblos, the Bible. For instance, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy, actually we'll take it from verse 15. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. You know, you can start teaching your kids from infancy the truth from the Bible. How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Scripture means writings. These are things that have been written down. The Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Pay close attention to verse 16. All Scripture, everything written in this book, is God-breathed. It's inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, and the King James says, is given by inspiration of God. God inspired every word in this book. It's His book. It's His revelation. And the Bible itself repeatedly claims that it is that book. It is that inspired revelation of God. Look also in 2 Peter (coughs) chapter 1. And here in 2 Peter 1, Peter is remembering his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, it was Peter, James, and John that went up into the mountain with Jesus, and they saw him transfigured there. They saw Moses and Elijah and all that. And he's remembering that experience of seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain. But then in verse 19, and I'm going to read this from the New King James, it says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. King James says, A more sure word of prophecy. Even more sure than that experience he had on the mountain where he heard the audible voice of God saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased, He says, we have something more certain than that. We have the word of the prophets made more certain. We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed 
as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is this more sure prophetic word that Peter's referring to? He tells us in verse 20, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, the written word, he says, is even more sure than any audible voice that you might hear. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to talk more uh, next time about just how the whole Bible came together. 66 books written by 40 different authors, and yet it's one unified book. It's not a whole bunch of books put together. It's one book. And whether you're reading Genesis or 2 Kings or 1 Peter or the book of Revelation, you sense that the same person is talking to you. It's God Almighty because it's his book. It's his revelation. And all of the writers of the Bible were inspired by God to write down what they wrote. And this is such an absolute certainty that in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the last book, in the final verses, God gives this stern warning. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. And I'm going to be stopping here in just a moment. Here's what God says. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. By the way, you can separate out a number of the religions in the world just on the basis of that one statement. Mormonism, uh, Islam, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. One thing all of these religions have in common, they've taken the scriptures and added to them. They've got what are called extra-biblical revelations that were added on to the scriptures. That's why God gave this warning. If anyone adds anything to this book, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life, and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And we saw on Sunday that more correctly, 
the translation there on verse 19, God will take away from him his share in the book of life. The book of life is where the names of the saved are written. This is very serious. And when God gave us the Bible, he wants us to be very clear. This is his revelation. We don't need anything more, and we dare not subtract anything from this revelation. It's all true from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And in John 10, verse 35, and this is where I'm going to close for tonight because we're running over. John 10, verse 35, is a strange little scripture. Jesus quotes uh, an obscure verse from the Old Testament. John 10, verse 35. Actually, we'll read verse 34 and verse 35. And he's quoting from Psalm 82, verse 6, which reads, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. That's what Psalm 82, 6 says. So Jesus quotes that in John 10, 34. He says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? Next verse. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, even a, an obscure little verse like this from Psalm 82, Jesus is quoting it and making a point. The scripture cannot be broken. He said in another place, you can't even change one little punctuation mark. Not even a jot or a tittle. Those were little uh, punctuation marks in the Hebrew. You can't even change a dot or a comma or a period in his word. The scripture cannot be broken. And we as Christians, we have to understand in these last days, the Bible is under great attack. Many Christians, many churches, many pastors have compromised the word of God. We need to understand that this is God's book, and you don't mess with it. You may not understand everything in it, but he has declared through his word that this is his revelation of truth, and the scripture cannot be broken. Now, we're going to pick it up here next time, and we're going to keep looking at some of the other exclusive claims of the the Bible, exclusive claims of the Christian faith. Let me just recap what we've done so far. Number one, God, the God of the Bible, claims to be the one and only true God. Secondly, Jesus claims to be the only way to that God. I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one can come to God. No one can come to heaven except through me. And then thirdly, we've seen that the Bible itself claims to be the only authoritative word of God. There aren't any other books like it. And by the way, the Bible continues to be the number one bestseller of all time. No other book comes close to second place to the Bible. It is God's book, and it's unique. If you've tried to read any of the other religious writings, and I don't even recommend doing it, you can tell immediately there's something different. It just doesn't read the same way that the Holy Bible reads. God wrote this book, and when you read it, he's there to bear witness with the fact that this is the truth. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to continue this next time, and I hope this helps not only strengthen your own faith, but equip you so that you can be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you, why do you believe in God? Why do you hope in Christ? Why do you go to church? Why do you believe in what you believe in? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you for strengthening our faith that we may be prepared to give an answer to anyone who would ask us why we believe, why we're Christians, and that, God, you would equip us to go out and to share the good news of the gospel, to boldly proclaim your word with meekness, with humility, with courtesy and with, and with respect, but with boldness and authority that this is the way, this is the true God, and there's only one way to reach him. His name is Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for strengthening, for blessing each and every one participating in this Bible study tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.